0: Welcome to the Democracy Dispatch podcast. I'm Justin Marsh, political outreach director at Vermont Conservation Voters. This is your weekly scoop on legislative action as we work to push forward environmental policies for Vermont. Each Monday, we will take a look back at the week prior, preview the week ahead, and speak with legislators and advocates on topics affecting our air, water, open space, and quality of life. On today's show, I will be joined by Lauren Hurl for the session shakedown segment. Lauren chats with Katie Gallagher of Vermont Natural Resources Council for our deep dive conversation about smart growth housing policy. Later, I'll speak with Representative Dane Whitman about his work in the legislature, PFAS and other toxics that are of concern to Vermont, and particularly the Bennington region for which he represents, as well as other priorities for this biennium as we approach crossover. But first, if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on social media too. On Twitter, we are at VoteGreenVT, Instagram at VTConservationVoters, and find us on Facebook as well. You can subscribe to our emails, see our legislative scorecard, and learn more about our work and policies by visiting VermontConservationVoters.org. Have an idea for a story or want to provide feedback, email me at jmarsh at vermontconservationvoters.org. Now I'm joined by Lauren Hurl, Executive Director of Vermont Conservation Voters, for our Session Shakedown segment, where we recap the week prior and look to this coming week of the legislature. This week we saw the Affordable Heat Act move to the Senate Committee on Appropriations. Why this additional step and what do we think uh that committee is going to do with the bill
1: yeah so after the work the senate natural resources committee did on the affordable heat act to try to get the policy right um, again setting the blueprint for how we help transition vermonters to cleaner and more affordable heating options so now the appropriations committee is going to look at it and our understanding is they are likely to add some kind of policy amendment that would basically bring the uh, the blueprint back to the legislature to have another look at it before the program would go into effect. So we'll be keeping an eye on what that structure looks like, um, but a similar provision was added to last year's clean heat standards. So that's what we're anticipating to see next week out of that committee.
0: And then we're expecting a vote around Wednesday.
1: Correct? Yep. So mm-hmm. we're expecting, um, as of right now, it sounds like before they leave for town meeting break. So by the end of the week that they're hoping to have voted on the Senate floor for the bill.
0: Great. Uh, This last Wednesday, the Transportation for Vermonters group held a lobby day at the state house. Several transportation advocates gave testimony in committee and there were walk to shop trolleys on display and an e-bike and lots of great conversation about how to improve the way we get around this great state. Um, So that was exciting. And there's been some more testimony in the house Environment and Energy Committee. What's what's the latest for those policies?
1: So the House Environment and Energy Committee has continued to work on two of our uh, priority bills, the 30 by 30 bill. So again, they've been in markup really looking at that policy and how it is both establishing kind of how much land is conserved in Vermont right now and what is our plan and our commitment to getting to 30% uh, conserved land by 2030. So we're expecting for that bill to see um, hopefully movement um, in the coming week before the town meeting break that that would pass out of committee. Similarly, uh, the committee has been continuing testimony on updating and modernizing the bottle bill. And so they've been continuing to do uh, markup and work through the remaining issues on that one. And we're also hopeful that the committee will, have, uh, will vote that out uh, this coming week before town meeting break as well.
0: Great. Now let's move to your conversation with Katie Gallagher, the Sustainable Communities Program Director at Vermont Natural Resources Council, where you go a bit deeper on the
1: housing bill. I am delighted to be here with Katie Gallagher, who is the Sustainable Communities Program Director for the Vermont Natural Resources Council, and she is an expert in planning, community development, um, all kinds of things of how we make livable, wonderful communities that we want to live in. And one of the areas of high priority this year is housing, of course, and where and how we develop housing. So, can you just start, Katie, by telling us how you think about housing? Uh, kind of big picture, like what are we trying to prioritize when we're thinking about the future of housing in Vermont?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, housing is one of these really uh, uh, complicated but interesting topics because it's not—it's not just about having a home, but obviously that's a really incredibly important component of it, but it's also about where you live and how where you live matters, both for you personally. So if you are able to live in a place where you feel safe walking out the door and crossing the street to go to the park or go to the store, that's one thing that we're looking at. Um, It also matters if you are living uh, in a distance where you can Go and say hi to your neighbor or to a family or friends. So, from a social connectedness perspective, it's really important, um, especially when we think about having an older population and the impact of social isolation. But then also from an environmental perspective, it's really important because when we build our homes uh, far away from where we work or from where our kids go to school or we need to get our goods and services, that means. One, that we have to drive, especially because we're in a state where we don't have a lot of transportation alternatives, we have to drive, which means that we are contributing to greenhouse gas emissions, and we know that that is the largest source of our um, climate pollution in the state of Vermont. It also means that the more we're, we're building out on relatively large lot sizes in single-family homes, we have to put those homes somewhere, and we need to consume that land. So that land that could have been used, or was previously used for farming, or was you know up the hill a little bit, or um, you know part of a forest or an ecosystem that was intact, now we're clearing that to put homes there. Um, and what we talk a lot about is that we don't actually need to do that. We have existing downtowns and village centers that um, have space for what's known as infill development. So maybe that's adding a unit um, into an existing building or converting a commercial space that's no longer used because more and more people are working from home into apartments. Um, Or there's uh, a a parking lot that, that might not be used very frequently. And that could be a space for um, a four-unit multifamily home or something like that. So from, from both the, the social and environmental perspective, where we live is really important. And, and I'll also just note that it's also been proven that folks who live closer where there are homes that are closer to um, local businesses are better for local businesses. And they're more likely to shop uh, downtown rather than buying online or having to drive out somewhere else. So it's it's really a, a comprehensive win-win-win on the social,
1: economic, and environment, environmental perspectives. Thank you for that. That's super helpful. And so tying it into what's been happening at the state house on housing. So can you describe um, some of the highlights from your perspective of what the housing bill that the Senate Economic Development Committee has been working on Like, what are the provisions that you're excited about and how they further that vision for housing in the right places? I'm really excited about
2: three primary pieces. And and this um, in the bill itself is a couple different provisions, but the the three kind of big buckets um, that I would highlight one is looking at re legalizing. Um, the types of homes that we can develop. So a lot of municipal zoning uh, in the past 50 plus years has uh, been created in such a way that it only allows for, and in many zoning districts or in all of their zoning districts, for single family homes. So that means no duplexes, no um, We recently were able to allow for at the state level um, what's known as accessory dwelling units or granny flats, in-law apartments. Um, But essentially anything other than a single family home is often not allowed. Um, So part of what this bill does is it says that anywhere that a single family home is allowed, a duplex should also be allowed. And anywhere where we have Uh, Water and sewer infrastructure, where we have publicly invested infrastructure, specifically in those areas where we want growth, um, those should allow for four plexes. So just, again, a single building with four um, units within it. A second big bucket of of this work is re-legalizing the um, greater number of units per Uh, parcel or per acre in this case. So another way that zoning has been exclusionary and not allowed um, a diverse number or type of homes to be included in our village centers and downtowns is by saying you need to have X amount of space for a single home. And again, that goes back to part of the problem is that you are saying, okay, nobody else, we're only going to, we only have so much space in this area. We're only only going to allow so many homes in this area and everybody else has to build out and out and you need to, you are required to consume a significant amount of land. Um, what the bill is doing is, is not making it so that, you know, we can't have lawns or anything like that, but just saying we should be allowing you know, instead of only one home per acre, it should be something like four or five units per acre, and that still is a is a pretty good um, uh, kind of distribution of homes and green space. Towns can certainly go above and beyond that, but you can't prevent that um, and exclude that from happening. Um, the third bucket of work that I think is really important is looking at how we require. Um, potentially excessive parking so another way that zoning has impacted the ability to build certain projects in our downtowns and village centers is by requiring a certain number of parking spaces either per unit or per bedroom and what this means is that we need to take up a lot of that space for parking even though it might not be necessary um, and we see that in a lot of cases where there's just a lot of empty spaces. But then, you know, if you're building an affordable housing project, um, you might not be able to build as many units as you want to because you're required to um, use up a lot of your land for parking. And you're already not allowed to build up because the town has has zoning requirements on building heights. So it can be really restrictive. It's also um, a uh having parking spaces that um, are not necessary also means that we have a lot of um, impervious surfaces in our know, downtowns that contribute to water runoff and other sources of pollution. It contributes to things like heat islands as we think about a warming planet. Um, so it has a lot of negative um, environmental impacts as well. So this bill would be saying, you can require, um, I think it, it was it was changed recently from one to one and a half parking spaces. but but again just kind of thinking more deeply about what do we actually need to require and mandate versus allowing the market or the developer to accommodate
1: on their own. That is great. So sounds like the housing bill that's moving through the Senate right now, um, a lot that we like, a lot of provisions that really further the smart growth development in yep. uh, places we want. We know there are some provisions uh, that from VNRC's perspective, we're going to keep working on it as it moves through the process, yep. particularly related to Act 250 um, and, you know, making sure that there's access for people and that we're finding that right balance of um, public access to various processes, uh, ensuring that we're able to simultaneously protect our environment and develop housing. Um, So we'll keep you uh, updated on all of that as it continues to play out. But thank you so much, Katie, for sharing your perspectives and that great overview of the housing bill and what smart growth housing will look like for Vermont. Thanks for having me.
0: Representative Dane Whitman of Bennington is currently in his second term in the legislature. Dane is a California native who has been in Vermont for the last decade, coming here originally to enroll at Bennington College, where he studied food systems, music, and the advancement of public action. He served as an engineer tech for the town of Bennington's PFOA Waterline Remediation Project. He currently operates his own small business and serves on several boards in southwest Vermont. In 2022, Dane was awarded VCV's Rising Star Award as a member of the House Committee on Human Services. He played a key role in the passage of a nation-leading bill that bans toxic PFAS chemicals in a range of products including firefighting foam, food packaging, ski wax, and carpets and rugs. He did extensive research helping shape a strong bill during the committee process and ultimately presented the bill on the floor, which garnered unanimous support. Welcome, Dane, and thank you for being such a strong environmental champion right out the gate. Well, thank you, Justin. Great to be here. So let's just start by discussing the toxics legislation that you put forth last biennium. First, can you explain at a high level what PFAS are and where they come from?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will start by saying that um, I did not know so much about PFAS before beginning my work in the legislature, but over time uh, really dove into the topic as I saw that it was um, so pervasive throughout everything that we do. Um, so, PFOS are it's an interesting chemical um, that is known as a surfactant. Um, a lot of the time, the first place that people's mind goes are nonstick pans, right? Um, and if you could just sort of take that idea of nonstick um, water repellent and uh, extend that to so many of the products that we use in our day to day life, whether it is um, raincoats, um, again, the nonstick pans looking at uh, carpets maybe being water repellent. And pretty quickly, you find that it's this product that is used um, in hundreds of different applications. Um, There are thousands of different chemicals within the PFOS class, whereas um, a lot of our work so far in Bennington has been related to um, perfluorooctanoic acid, which is known as PFOA, which is really just one of the thousands of chemicals out there. Um, and the big kind of, um, the reason why they're so important for us right now and such a public health concern and environmental concern is that they, um, are known as forever chemicals. Um, I am not sure if people were quite aware of this when PFAS started getting, um, developed in labs and things like that, but, um. They have this incredibly strong chemical bond that does not break down in the natural world. So the more that we have been producing PFOS, putting it into products, you know, furniture, clothes, and those ending up in the landfill, um, they just continue to accumulate in our environment. And um, you know, really, the only way that uh, they would kind of go away, scientists are saying, is if they were just basically make their way out rivers and streams, sink to the bottom of the ocean. That's not happening anytime soon. So we're surrounded with these chemicals that um, while they persist, they're forever chemicals in the environment. They're also pretty um, close to permanent in our bodies as well. Um, That forever chemicals component having to do with um, the long kind of half-life that uh, a PFAS chemical will stay within our bloodstream, actually accumulating from the products that we may be exposed to over time and causing a number of health issues, um, being linked to different sorts of cancer, um, definitely developmental issues for um, pregnant women, uh, pregnant people and their children. And um, yeah, I think it's just such a... Um, huge issue that we are learning more and more about over time, but is a cause for high concern. So um, I think that's just kind of highest level what PFAS are and what we're dealing with right now.
0: Yeah, uh, it definitely doesn't sound like anything that's uh, super beneficial and great for us to be having. And why? So this is a, a topic that is kind of personal to your district. Um, can you talk a little bit about Bennington and, the, and its neighboring communities and the impact that PFAS has had on those residents?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so right about when I was graduating college in 2016, um, uh, right around that time was when residents of Bennington learned that there had been a large amount of PFAS contamination, specifically PFOA, from a local manufacturing uh, site. Um, this was a site, uh, St. Gobain Performance Plastics, which was emitting uh, huge amounts of uh, PFAS uh, as basically emissions coming out of their factory. So imagine big smokestacks. I walk by them every day that were sort of uh, spewing out this vapor that was essentially Teflon, uh, like vaporized Teflon. and. After decades and decades of operation, um, this Teflon made its way into groundwater, um, made its way into drinking water. Um, And it became apparent that for so many of the um, Bennington residents who were uh, relying on their well water, that they had been exposed to um, really concerning uh, high, high amounts of PFAS in their drinking water, potentially for decades. Um, So this was a very scary time uh, for our community. There was a lot of um, uncertainty, a lot of information gathering needing to take place over a a short amount of time. The factory itself had actually been out of commission for about a decade or so, but um, people really were seeking answers. Um, So what ultimately happened was, um, you know, there was a rapid response to get people onto drinking water. Um, installing filtration systems for their wells. Um, and then over time, um, continuing to sort of uh, study where were the contaminated areas, where were these sorts of hot spots. Um, it was really concerning, you know, um, the, the sort of these emissions, um, the fallout of this um, factory's operations made its way all the way into some of our um, watersheds up in the eastern mountains, you know, what we call white rocks out here in Bennington, and um, just how pervasive this had been. Um, So from there, um, there was a settlement, uh, legal settlement between the town of Bennington and uh, St. Gobain Performance Plastics to um, basically have them remediate this issue in the form of uh, connecting households to municipal water. Our municipal water was still um, a clean drinking water source, um, was unaffected by PFAS, had its own filtration systems sort of centralized. Um, So, over the course of the years with the settlement happening, um, it was just this gigantic feat of sort of tearing up most of what today is my district, um, extending eight inch diameter iron uh, water lines through the middle of roads. Um, connecting service lines out to households to get them connected to a clean water source. And then subsequently, um, part of the deal was destroying um, the wells, um, which were still, you know, able to pump out contaminated uh, groundwater. So it was a huge, um, huge issue for the community. Uh, Lots of research took place. And I'll say in my experience of, um, Working at um, MSK Engineering, which was the engineering firm responsible for doing both the design and the construction inspection um, for sort of the quality of the waterline installation. Um, Part of that work was me going door to door, um, meeting neighbors uh, who had been affected by this um, and just some of the real concerns, the uncertainty, the anger um that came out of this was really impactful you know um some folks i think felt really strongly that um they wanted justice uh, served for their uh brown water being contaminated they weren't fully satisfied with the idea of losing their well and going on to town water you know if you think about it um being able to pump water from the ground and have it be safe to drink is kind of a basic idea of resilience, uh, independence, you know, uh, living off of the land. And a lot of people lost to that ability in a big way uh, through this. So um, yeah, it was, I mean, it was a huge experience for me uh, going door to door, meeting folks, hearing their concerns, trying to address it and get them ready for, um, you know, their neighborhood to get um, torn up By uh, construction equipment to connect them to safe water supply. So um, yeah, it was a big time.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a a real large undertaking to say the least. Um, And did your experience being able to basically go door to door before you were even running for office did that? Of course, you were elected in 2020 during the, Mm -hmm. the peak of the COVID pandemic, but was did that inspire at all your desire to run um, or, or was it just a helpful sort of additional (laughs) moment in your, in your journey?
3: Yeah. Well, I will say that it informed me of um, you know what this community is, what this district is. I mean, it's clear, it's, uh, it's only coincidence that the district that I'm running in right now was basically the extent of the PFAS contamination. Um, But, Going in and making the decision to run in 2020, um, I did feel confident knowing that I had been door to door and I had seen each corner of this community already um, and seen the issues that people face, the the views and perspectives of uh, my neighbors. And um, yeah, and knowing that issues like environmental justice were going to remain a priority uh, for me as well as other Bennington County reps, um, you know, in the years ahead. So how
0: are things now in Bennington? Every Is everything resolved? I know there's the, the settlement that you mentioned from St. Cobain. Um, where, where is your community at now as far as
3: drinking water is concerned? Yeah. So um, as far as where things are at now, many homes have been connected to municipal water. Um, But that is really just a consolation when you think about the impact on our, um, you know, natural lived environment. Um, Personally, I live um, just a block up from St. Gobain Performance Plastics, um, where it used to operate. And I'm looking out my window right now at what we call the Mill Pond. Um, which might actually have been a somewhat decent place to swim if we didn 't know that it was just such a high rate of contamination um, that we need to watch out for um, i 've had uh garden clients you mentioned that I was um, a gardener. I have clients who live near this site who are really, really concerned about growing food from their soil um, you know, and I think that 's just a huge loss for somebody to uh, have that kind of uh you know Concern. Um, And yeah, I think that as far as what we look at our um, water supply and all that, it's still concerning. There are definitely um, also developments on the federal level that are showing that the threshold um, at which PFAS is considered dangerous, um, the threshold that we set up, you know, four or five years ago, even more um, I think was in the range of, you know, 10, 20, 30, I can't remember off the top of my head, parts per trillion. And now, um, you know, I think guidance is coming out that any detection of PFAS, you know, may be a cause for concern. And so there are some folks who are still relying on well water, um, still testing trace amounts of PFAS and, um, there's still that cause for concern. So it is certainly an ongoing issue um, affecting the community. And fortunately there are um, filtration systems available um, in, in the absence of connecting to municipal water, but those are not um, inexpensive, right? So um, yeah. yeah, it's a, definitely going to be an ongoing, ongoing issue.
0: Well, right now we are waiting for the Senate Committee on Health and Welfare to take up S-25, which would further prohibit toxics in items like personal care products and menstrual products, textiles, and turf. Um, If that does move from the Senate, it will shift over to your committee in the House, uh, are you able to elaborate a little bit more on those toxics and the impacts that they would have on Vermonters? Yeah,
3: absolutely. Um, and before I go into um, S twenty-five, which is in the house right now, I think maybe I'll just take a step back about the work that we did two years ago. Um, sure. And with it was S twenty of twenty twenty-one, where um, it was a bill put forward. We in House Human Services, where I serve, received it from the Senate. Um, you know, halfway through my first year. And, um, you know, again, I knew about the sort of environmental impact for uh, the community of Bennington, but I had never realized, um, you know, seeing this bill in front of me saying that PFAS is still in food packaging. PFAS is still being put into firefighting foam, rugs and carpets, ski wax. Um, It kind of just seemed like this uh, tragic irony to me that here we in Bennington invested millions of dollars into ensuring that we had um, safe drinking water supply. And yet people are still putting PFAS into pizza boxes, (laughs) you know, and people are eating pizza out of those pizza boxes and exposing it to themselves. So um, the way that I saw um, S20 from two years ago was really what are the ways in which um, we are still exposing ourselves on a daily basis to these chemicals and how do we address those um, as quickly as possible? Um, So that is sort of now translating over into um, S25. I know that two years ago, um, there was a huge amount of You know, resistance, a lot of questions from all different kinds of angles, Um, definitely from industry folks concerned about what a, say, ban on food packaging would mean for um, availability of food packaging. But over time, we really learned more and more that, okay, we can identify alternatives like beeswax, (laughs) you know what I mean, like just plain old wax instead of PFAS. Um, just not doing anything to a cardboard box, it gets a little bit greasy. We go on with our lives, right? So I think that um, we were able in that point to really identify available alternatives, see that high risk to public health. And I'm glad that through the work that we did, we were able to get a unanimous vote from the House, um, I believe from the Senate and the governor's signature. And now coming up this year, S25, uh, I see it a lot as... You know, what were the products that pose a huge threat still as far as exposure, um, but, you know, didn't make it onto our list two years ago. So as soon as I um, knew about the prevalence of PFAS in cosmetics, um, personal hair products, you know, we did a lot of work on uh, phthalates, which is another chemical class, which is often used in shampoo. Um, again, you're exposing directly your face to these harmful chemicals. So that's just something that we we should and need to address. Um, looking at cooking utensils, um, you know, turf um, is another one that folks have brought up. Just all of these situations where either you might have, um, you know, directly eating it, children, yeah, young children, having heightened exposure is always a concern. Um, so yeah, I am just really looking forward to diving into this again. Um, it's definitely can be a bit of a uh, alphabet soup for a lot of the uh, members of the committee, you know, within human services, I think, uh, you know, multi uh chemical names, <laughs> like perfluorooctanoic acid can kind of be a lot to sort of um, disentangle for a lot of folks. But it's, um, yeah, a big job ahead of us. And Looking forward to um, taking it on and continuing to address um, where the highest risks are to keep Vermonters safe.
0: Yeah, and um, just curious, what is the strategy or the the thought behind this incremental approach to PFAS regulation and banning? Um, You know, you started with one list and and we're you know adding more this biennium, hopefully, and there's still others out there that aren't included. So, um, why this approach?
3: Yeah. So I would love to get rid of the stuff, right? I would love to get rid of PFAS. I would love for it to not have to be a part of our waste management considerations, a part of the risks that we deal with. And we have to think, oh, I'm buying a pan from the grocery store. Um, Does it have PFAS in it or not? Like, you know, this kind of idea that we're putting this on consumer um, knowledge just doesn't sit right with me. The reason why I believe an incremental approach though is sort of what I feel like we're um, working with right now is that PFOS is so prevalent um, through so many consumer products. There was a study that went out that just sort of randomly sampled products for PFAS and it found hundreds, hundreds of consumer products. And some of them were concerns um, like uh, clothing, furniture, uh, and then others were sort of more like, oh, I didn't realize that PFAS was in rope. Um, and for me, I just think about, um, okay, and is there an alternative to PFAS for rope without, or is there rope without PFAS? And anyway, each time that we take one of these on, in my mind, we have to ask ourselves questions about the availability of alternatives so that we aren't inadvertently, say, banning fishing line, <laughs> right? I think that would probably cause some uh, concerns from the community if uh, that ended up being the, being the case. So there's, um, I think, ongoing research and understanding of um, why PFOS is in these products, what are the available alternatives And that's just some of the work that I think needs to be done with each of these decisions. And that being said, um, there is um, ongoing thoughts and happening in other states about what if rather than taking this bite by bite, year by year, we can set up a sort of more um, systematic process by which we establish within our state's government, uh, you know, a built in system to ask those questions and say, okay, we aren't allowing PFAS for these products because, say, the Department of Health has determined that there is an alternative. Um, We know that the state of California has been doing some of this work. Um, That being said, um, you know, one of the most populated states in the nation, um, having a far greater uh, set of resources to do that kind of work um, compared to one of the smallest states in the nation. <laughs> Trying to do that same, uh, same task is um, definitely something for us to think about.
0: VCV is a member of Safer States along with our colleagues at VPERG, and we are always grateful for the modeling other states like California have done in this work. Uh, you can check out saferstates.org to see progress nationwide. So Dane, uh, besides your work on PFAS, what have you and your committee been up to?
3: Yeah, so um, House Human Services Committee um, in the year 2023 is taking on um, quite a few things, um, and we are definitely working pretty closely with the Senate Committee as well and sort of having that back and forth that we're looking at. Um, We're definitely looking forward to receiving a child care bill from the Senate um, sometime within the next couple weeks. We're coming on to cross over here, so we'll be dedicating a huge amount of time to that and trying to work towards a more universal childcare system where families are able to afford uh, high quality childcare and childcare providers are supported to receive a livable wage and um, to expand to the capacity that our state needs. Um, So that is definitely gonna be a huge priority for us. Um, In my... um, One of my other big interests under the umbrella of the Department of Health, um, besides PFAS and sort of toxic control, is looking at um, actions uh, to address the state's um, ongoing epidemic for uh, fatal overdoses um, through um, polysubstance use disorder. Um, Everybody, I think, is aware of the sort of tragic rates that we're seeing from uh, fentanyl other opiate-related uh, overdoses. So um, uh, our committee, House Human Services, has taken up H222, um, a sort of omnibus bill to try to push through a number of um, policies that's in response um, to that ongoing epidemic. And uh, yeah, looking forward to continuing to work on that. Um, and yeah, we've also um, doing a lot of work about supporting um, families with children through some of our reach-up programs, looking at reforms there. Um, And we spent a good portion of this spring taking a close look at the Adult Protective Services um, statute um, for filing uh, investigations um, and assessments for um, victims of um, abuse, neglect, exploitation uh, for vulnerable adults. Um, And that statute. Apparently hasn't been updated for decades, so we're taking a deep dive, and it is just um, such important work, and it's a you know privilege to be able to work on all of these all of these initiatives that serve uh, Vermonters, keep them safe, keep them supported, and uh, you know hopefully help people reach a higher potential. So it's uh, it's great.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, it's always good to get the lowdown on what committees are doing, because obviously we are so focused on environmental policies, it's um, hard to keep track of everything else that's being discussed. And so thank you to you and your committee for taking on that, those really important policies. And of course, I want to thank you uh, just for taking the time today, uh, over the weekend, very sacred time for legislators this time of year, uh, to take uh, take time out of your day to chat with me and, and also for your leadership in the
3: state house. So I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. Uh, Look forward to seeing you up there. All right. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.
2: Now
0: it's time for our climate stat of the week. 8,000. That is the approximate number of residents in the towns of Bennington and Shaftesbury and the village of North Bennington who were affected by PFOA contamination linked from St. Gobain Plastics ChemFab plant in North Bennington. The class action settlement agreement, which I spoke with Dane Whitman about, reached in November 2021, called for the corporation to pay $34 million to affected residents. I want to thank our guests, Representative Dane Whitman and VNRC's Katie Gallagher, as well as Lauren Hurl for assisting me. We'll be back next Monday for a special edition of Democracy Dispatch, where we give a halftime report of the year thus far as the legislature is due for their town meeting day break, and we approach crossover. The following week, we'll be taking uh, the week off, and we'll be back for, for new episodes later in March. Until next time, thanks for
3: listening.